Turn with me to that wonderfully intriguing book, Revelation. Chapter 4, we're starting a new chapter and a new part of the outline. So we're making progress here with the revelation of Jesus Christ about the end of history as we know it. So exciting stuff. Let's pray to the Lord and ask him for his help. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit who's here with us, that you would help us to make sense of these words on a page, that you would lift them and carry them into our hearts. Give us your insights, Lord, that we might see the truth and put it into practice because that's what you said will be the only way to be blessed, not just hearing it and knowing it, but living it. So help us live the truth that we learned today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, with the anniversary of 9-11 being last week, came across an interesting documentary. It's called I Missed Flight 93, about three people who were supposed to be aboard that aircraft, but were not. And it tells their story. Some of you are nodding like you have seen it. Let me read a little bit of the uh, PR for this little film. On September 11th, uh, 2001, United Airlines Flight 93 from Newark to San Francisco was hijacked by terrorists. Passengers on board attempted to wrestle control of the airplane from the terrorists, and the plane crashed, killing all on board. Frank Robertazzi of East Hanover, New Jersey, was supposed to be on that plane. He regularly took that flight to fly to his business meetings in San Francisco. So was Daniel Bertolini. He was supposed to fly out west for vacation with his uncle who was waiting for him and got on board Flight 93, waiting. Heather Ogle was booked for first class seat 1A, two seats away from the lead terrorist. But through a series of unwitting decisions on their part and quirks of fate, Robert, Danielle, and Heather narrowly escaped death. None of them got on the plane that morning. They were supposed to get on the aircraft. They planned to. They never walked through that door. Because they missed the plane, they were spared the experience of great terror. Now, I really like stories about twists of fate, especially uh, those where there's a happy ending and disasters are averted and people are spared. Now, as most of you know, the major portion of this book of Revelation is a prophecy about the last seven years of planet Earth that culminates in something called Armageddon, which brings the end to human history as we know it in the beginning of Christ's eternal rule. Now, Jesus himself talks about this seven years, and he calls it the great distress or great tribulation. So we've coined that phrase from Jesus' own lips in Matthew 24 and verse 21. He said this, from, that t- from then there will be great distress or tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never again will be equaled. 
If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. And now, you know the story, most Christians, you know, about the Antichrist called the beast, the world dictator who rises to power during that time, and the signs and miraculous false wonders and the cataclysmic judgments that come down from the Lord on a Christ-rejecting world. Uh, It's just a terrible time. The sun, moon, and stars are shaken. They don't work properly. They go out of order. And the earth is really just turned upside down. Now, um, interestingly, the Bible says that the culmination of that time, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will return, and here's the prophecy, with his saints. Well... With his saints, the word saints in Zechariah chapter uh, 14 and verse 5 never means angels ever once. It only means God's people. So the prophecy says that this Lord comes back at the end of this terrible time with his people. And so we're going to talk about that concept. How is that possible? How, How can we be here and coming with him at the same time? Time. Well, I'm glad you asked me that because I've got pages to tell you about that. And so we're going to get excited about this because Paul, when Paul talks about it, you know, he doesn't say, hey, you know what? I don't really know about this thing, you know, but he says, hey, I'm telling you, this is going to happen and comfort one another with these words. And so we're going to talk about some encouragement this morning. We begin chapter four, which opens Uh, Now, with uh, verse 1, that supports this very idea that apparently there is compelling biblical evidence that not everyone alive at the time of the Antichrist will experience the great tribulation. Apparently, not everyone gets on the plane destined for great terror. And we're going to take a look at this. There are a lot of ideas about this, but this morning, chapter 4 and verse 1, it's a verse that is used as a major uh, support for the fact that the Lord could come at any moment for his church, take her away, and then start the great tribulation. Chapter 4 and verse 1. So it's a subject at hand. We're going to take a look at that right now. For context, if you just joined us, we just finished chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, where the Lord talks to the church. Seven literal historic churches that we have found represent all of uh, Christianity from its inception until the end. And so uh, he just finished speaking with the churches, and now, verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. It's 11 verses. Now after this, after talking about the church, I looked, and there before me was an open door, a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you What must take place after this? At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an 
emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, and we've talked about the reference for the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say or sing. It can go either way, especially when this is set off in prose. You are worthy, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created. All right, we're going to take a look at these fascinating verses, a glimpse into heaven. It's time to take a trip there to heaven, along with the Apostle John. So we're going to take a look around the very throne room of God, not from somebody's uh, perspective from here, but from the word of God through the Apostle John and the spirit of our Lord. Now, first of all, there's a huge significance not only in what John sees in heaven, but how he gets there and the timing of this strange catching up to heaven. We're going to take a look at both of these ideas as we walk through these 11 verses this morning. There are two ideas, John's transition to heaven and John's observation of heaven, the crux of the matter, is the second point, John's observation of heaven, but let's start with the important transition, how he gets there and why. Well, if you're taking notes, I have on my notes here little number one, and it says going up. And so that's how I entitled this segment, Going Up. Now, John receives a summons from Christ in your text to come up to heaven for the purpose of seeing what comes next in the future after the church. He says, come on up here. I want you to see what's about to happen. What is about to happen, folks? The great tribulation. So let's just get that straight in our head. Jesus, commentators say, has a purpose in John's sudden change of venue or change of location. John's move to heaven coincides with a move in the outline of our book of Revelation. Now let's make this very simple because it is very simple. Here's the outline that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us of the book of Revelation. In chapter 1 and verse 19, the Lord says, here's a prophecy, John, 
And I want you to divide it into three parts. The first part, I want you to write down what you have just seen. So he did this uh, beautiful image of the Lord Jesus Christ and his radiant glory. Chapter one, done, completed. Then he says, I want you to, to now write about what is now, what's happening on the earth during time, the age of the church, the age of grace. And so the Lord picked seven historical literal, literal churches there in modern day uh, Turkey. And he said, these, the seven, they're the perfect, complete picture of the church of all time. When I'm talking to them, I'm talking to my church. And uh, we find ourselves in that. Now, he says, next, I want you after that, I want you to write from chapters 4 to 22, the things of the future, after chapters 2 and 3, the church. And so what comes after is the Great Tribulation, which starts at about Revelation chapter 6 and about verse 17 begins. So we're a chapter away from what the Lord says comes after the church. And then, of course, not only the Great Tribulation, but the establishing of the great kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Interesting to me that now as we proceed into the last section of the Lord's outline of the book, he has a little object lesson. John has already been in the spirit, folks, from Revelation chapter 1 when he said, it was the Lord's day and I was worshiping and I was in the spirit and boom, I got this vision and I wrote that down. And then I got this vision all about seven churches and I wrote that down, check. And then whew, I get caught up by a command like a trumpet to be in heaven. Why? Only for what comes that follows the church. And so commentators say, wow, interesting choice of words in chapter 4 and verse 1 because they remind us of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16, 17, and 18, when, the, when Paul speaks about those who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall be caught up into heaven with a command, with a voice like a trumpet, into heaven, the heavenlies. Very similar language. And so it is something that we have to take into account here. Let me just read you the text. Thank you for that. After this, I looked, and there before me was this door standing open in heaven, and the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet saying, Come up here. That's a command. And I will show you what must take pl place after this. And then he says, At once I was in the Spirit. Well, John, you just said you were in the spirit in chapter one. He's saying something different happened. I mean, I'm in a different place. I didn't know. Wait, am I in the body? Am I in the spirit like Paul the apostle? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, I, I, I got caught up, same word, into heaven. Oh, most commentators believe it was when he was stoned in Lystra with rocks that uh, he was, <laughs> I just added that. I saw some of your eyes get really wide. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> what an experience that was for him. Uh, no, he was nearly killed. 
And uh, he got caught up, and that's the same word there, and he uses this same language. Now, here's a commentator I really appreciate. He says, why call John up into heaven at this particular point in the outline, using language that certainly connects us to what we would call the rapture of the church, if not to give us some support to what's already alluded to in the New Testament, that before God pours out his wrath on this earth to bring it to its end, he removes his church and brings them to heaven. Now, let me make a case for what I'm talking about here and, and just read to you that wonderful scripture from Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. After that, we who are still alive and are, are here, uh, remain alive, are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. Uh, therefore, comfort one another. He's, there is, Thessalonians is talking about the end of the world. And he's saying, hey, I've got some encouraging news. I want you to know something's going to happen here in a twinkling of an eye. Now, let's talk about what we call that the rapture. Now, let's talk about where that word came from because it's important. Okay? Uh, before the Bible came to us, it was written in Greek. The Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 that we will be caught up, is harpazo, all right? So that word means to seize or to carry off by force or to be snatched up. For example, uh, when the seed is sown on the path in the parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 8, he says, you know, think of it this way. The sower is sowing seed, and some of the seed falls on a path, but the path is hard, and the seed doesn't penetrate, and the birds of the air come and harpazo the seed away. That's the same word. There's also a word where the Lord says in John chapter 10 and verse 28, he says, I give my sheep eternal life, and nobody can harpazo them from my hand. Nobody can pluck them from my hand. Now, Philip, the deacon spirit-filled deacon, uh, had a miraculous thing happen to him in Acts chapter uh, 8, where uh, he was baptizing this man he led to the Lord, and when he come up from the water, the Lord, the spirit of the Lord took him away. And here's how it says, it says, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, ESV, harpazoed him, and the eunuch saw him no more. The, the New King James, now when they came up from the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, and the eunuchs saw him no more. The New Living Translation, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip up, and the eunuch didn't see him anymore. The NIV, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, harpazo, this is the word when he says, at the coming of the Lord, we who are alive at the time of the coming of the Lord will be harpazo, plucked up, snatched away. Now, the Greek 
went to Latin. In Latin, harpazo is translated raptura, same word. English speakers took that word and transliterated it to rapture. To transliterate means to Englishize. So in other words, it's almost English, let's twist it all the way. So they take raptura, we're not gonna run around calling it the raptura, so let's call it the rapture. It was coined in 1800. So the word is 200 years old, but the idea, the original word for which it is linked to inexorably is 2,000 years old, and it didn't just start with the Apostle Paul because 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this verse about being harpazoing up into the sky, he says, according to the Lord's own words, we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall be caught up. Ah, so the rapture, harpazo, catching up, didn't start with the Apostle Paul at 50 AD when he wrote 1 Thessalonians. It started 20 years earlier when our Lord and Savior was asked, how will the end of the world come? And the Lord said this. Here's a paraphrase. About that hour, it's a mystery. Nobody knows. But I'll tell you this much. It's going to be a lot like Noah's time. It took everyone then by surprise. People were getting married having dinner parties, going to work, right up until the day they went into the ark. No one had a clue. Then judgment came and the floods swept them away. That's how it's going to be when I return. Here we go. Two men will be working in a field. One is taken. One is left behind. Two women will be working, preparing in a kitchen. One will be taken, one will be left behind. Then Luke adds, the Lord must have added a third one. Two people asleep in bed. One is taken, one is left behind. Let me define for you what you can look up in any Greek lexicon. A Greek lexicon is a dictionary for Greek words. The word to take there is to take to one side. It's always used to take to a person. So he's saying, one will be taken to my side and somebody will be left. The context, the word rapture, is 200 years old. The concept of the rapture is 2,000 years old. So that is the answer to somebody who says, uh, who raised their hand when Mark Hitchcock was here and said those very things. That the rapture only appeared 200 years ago by this man named Darby. Well, it actually, rapture came from the Apostle Paul's pen through the Holy Spirit and through our Lord as well. So that's something to consider there. Can I throw this in for free? It's a little bunny trail I offer you. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will say to me on occasion, you know what, Trinity, not even in the Bible. You know, it came in the year 200. Well, then I say, well, excuse me, 
The word I understand was coined in 202, but the idea for Trinity starts in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Can we turn there together? And we do. And not you, them. (laughs) And I say, okay, let's start with Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 because we're going to find what the church father, Tertullian, found in 2002 when he coined the word from Latin, Trinitas. We find it in Genesis 1.1. God the Father initiating. God the Son, the living word creating. God the Spirit hovering and enabling. Verse 1, 2, and 3. You've got a problem. You've got three things going on. And then scroll down with me to half the page where it says, let us make man in our image. So do not tell me that we invented this idea. Elohim, the Lord Elohim. Elohim means God's is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, El is God. He says, Hear, O Israel, Elohim, the gods, is one. Plural verb. Singular verb, plural collective noun. Thank you. Uh, I always know when I make a mistake, your eyebrows. <laughs> mistake meters. <laughs> And that was a good one. That was on 10. (laughs) I knew how to stop. Okay. Now, it's hard to know what I really think about this subject, isn't it? (laughs) Well, it's only going to get worse from here. All right. Here, and we're probably not going to finish the chapter. I just have to give you a shout out if you're a little antsy about 11 verses to come. This is uh, the three evangelical views of the end of the world. Pre-tribulation means just that. The rapture happens, the harpazu, the plucking up, call it whatever you want, the catching away, the up we go, the elevator up. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm out of control. (laughs) (laughs) That it happens way before any tribulation of the tribulation kind. Let me pause and say this. Being a pre-tribulation person doesn't mean that we escape all persecution. There are people today being martyred today for their faith, losing everything. Our country could go upside down in a heartbeat. We could suffer hugely, hugely. This is just saying there's a type of tribulation coming on the world that's a little bit different than even the most severe every day. It's a different kind of period, and it's possible that we are removed first. If that's the case, it's pre. Then there are some scholars who say they're not very popular. They're in the middle, and they they do the math, and they say, you know, the tribulation will start, and then right in the middle, when it gets pretty bad, that's when we go up. That's mid. All right? Post has us going all the church, going all the way through, and then at the end... We get raptured, and then just enough time to high-five the Lord, and then it's time to go straight down right away. (laughs) Now, it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It just doesn't make any sense. Those are the three views, all right? Are we clear on that? You can say amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. 
Now, uh, let me just give you a sum up here. Most evangelical conservatives go with pre-trib because it makes a lot of sense because of the scriptures that we have. I'm going to give you just three or four quick reasons. Number one, this text that you're looking at. Everything to follow, everything Jesus wants to show John, he says it's after this, the verb meta taota in the Greek means finished, done and over, after. So he says, after what I've just been talking to you about, the church is over. Now let me show you everything else in the book. And it's the Great Tribulation. If you have nothing else, that's a tough one to argue against. It just, all hell breaks loose. Where's John? As a representative of heaven, he's at the throne. With elders who look a lot like Christians, they're just like Christians, they're wearing what Christians wear, and in chapter 5, they sing a song only Christians can sing. Number two. Number three, the word church is never again mentioned ecclesia in the Greek. Look online, never again mentioned. It is mentioned 17 times from Revelation chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 3. In the first three chapters, 17 times, church, 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 and then never again, not once. Hmm. I'm just curious why in the worst tribulation when the world is upside down and the sun is like shaking in its place that the Lord might not mention Something, one shout out, one verse about the church that's mentioned over a hundred times in the New Testament. Not a word. Something to think about. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's this. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. He's speaking to the church and he says, you know what? Because you're, you're enduring and you've been faithful, I am going to spare you from the hour that is coming upon the whole earth to test the whole earth and those who live on the earth. He said, I'm sparing you from it, not through it. He says, I'm, I'm going to keep you from that hour. Now, was he just talking about this little tiny congregation in ancient city called Philadelphia? A worldwide event that he kept them from? I don't think so. They represent us. They were a literal historical church, but we've already agreed. He's talking to his church, and he says, by the way, church, I'm going to spare you from the hour that comes on the whole planet. You're not going to go through it because I will spare you from it. If that's all, the only verse you had, it'd be tough to argue you out of your position. And then there's one more. Yeah, I know, I know, I don't know. Listen, I want to say this. People accuse pre-tribulationists of, being es- of it being escapism. It is not escapism. We understand that we pick up our cross and deny ourselves. We understand that we are to be persecuted. We understand it's tough here. But if the Lord twice, through the Apostle Paul, says that we are not appointed to wrath in conjunction with the coming of the Lord, 
and therefore comfort one another with these words. These are words of encouragement. These are not words to make us think, well, nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. It's not escapism if it's in the scriptures. Now listen to this, and this will be one of my final ones. Uh, Just in case there's another one I think of. Here's a quote. For God has not appointed us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle speaking. In one chapter from now, an angel will cry out, the day of God's wrath has come upon them. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16. Paul the Apostle, comfort one another because God has not appointed you, us, to wrath. One chapter from now, the day of God's wrath is falling upon them. Well, upon them, where's John? Oh, John's at the throne. As commentators say, representing us with elders who represent us singing Christian songs, wearing white robes. Angels do not wear crowns. They are never called elders. And so I can make that case if I had time. But you know what? I don't have time. And you know what? I'm not worried about it. You know why? Because guess what? I'm the pastor. (laughs) And guess what again? You know what? We're going to let out early today. You know why? (laughs) I'm the pastor. (laughs) Now listen, I don't want to rush through the throne room. And there, look at over that. There are angels with six wings, and there are seraphs, and whoa, there are cherubims. And look at all those eyes on the front and the back. That's what I did first service. That was no fun because I was in such a hurry. It still didn't work, but I tried. You know what? I'm not even going to try today. I think the point of this message was to establish the very real possibility that according to the scriptures, let me just put it this way. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let me close by bringing up another example of the end of the world given to us through Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. Scholars say, along with Peter and Jude, that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of the end time judgment. They are a picture. This is a microcosm, a little picture of the end of the world. And what happens there? Well, nothing can happen until what? Until somebody who is right with God, righteous, is removed. So it takes a lot to get Lot. (laughs) It takes a lot to get Lot out of Sodom. He's a very weak sauce believer, which goes with the church age Laodicea being the flavor of the church at the time of the Lord's coming. So weak faith compromised Lot is stuck in the middle of a place that's ready to have the judgment of God fall. See if you follow me here. The angels come and say, man, we got to take you away. 
Come on, let's go. Up. Not down around into the valley for cover. We got to go up. So the angel takes Lot and his family, hesitantly, because of his spiritual state, his Laodicean state, he takes them up. As they're going up, he hesitates again, and the angel says, listen, man, we're going to go up. you got to get a move on, and here's the quote I love. For I can do nothing until you are safe. Because I can do nothing. Everything's on hold with Sodom and Gomorrah, represents the end of the world. Nothing can happen until you, my friend, weak sauce but righteous, because you are right with God through faith, are up and safely tucked away. And as soon as he is, all health falls loose. Now, I mixed an idiom there, but <laughs> you'll forgive me. You know what happens, right? Up and away, tucked away, safe. The Lord says, comfort one another with these words. John, come up here. Let me, well, sorry, John, every John in the place just went, whoa. <laughs> he says, John, come up here. Let me show you what comes after chapters 2 and 3 of the church are done and over and up with me watching from heaven on the wrath that comes down on those who dwell on the earth. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the comfort. We just take your word at face value. Words that Jesus, that you spoke words that you supplied the Apostle Paul and other things, Father, that just give us hope. Father, it, it is just a sweet hope that apparently you felt important to encourage us with. Now, Father, we live with a heavenly perspective, but we know it's about new life today. You've raised us to new life, to live, to enjoy today. And Father, it's easier to enjoy knowing that our lives are safe with you no matter what goes on. Father, we're just thankful for your great love, the safety of knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, as you stand, let me tell you something funny somebody told me. Stand. We can stand. <laughs> Somebody said, do you know what I am? I'm not a pre-tribber. I'm not a mid-tribber. I'm not a post-tribber. I'm a pan-tribulationist. And I said, what is that? And he said, it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> you know what, folks? It's okay to disagree with non-essentials. These are non-essentials. The most important thing is Jesus, God, have you trusted him? Has the Holy Spirit come into your heart? Have you repented of your sins? Is Jesus Lord? That's the thing that this gospel is all about. How it unfolds at the end, there's some questions there. 
there's a lot of excitement and hope and room for when we get there to say a big, I told you so. Amen? (laughs) I had to do that right at the end, didn't I? Unbelievable. All right, let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy that we have and just knowing our sins are washed away. And there's a lot of exciting scriptures that just get us excited and encouraged. Help us to, to, to live in response to a God who loves us so very much. In Jesus' name, amen.